Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. This is our first episode of our second season, which has to do with the books that won in 2014. Today we're going to be talking about One Came Home by Amy Timberlake, which was published by Alfred A. Knopf, an imprint of Random House Children's Books in 2013, and was an honor book in 2014. For this episode, we're drinking something called a Calamity Jane, and I found the recipe online. It is from the Cocktail Virgin, but Virgin is slashed out, and it's slut on the webpage. Which for, I think is a slur, uh, considering Calamity Jane. Well, I don't know, it, because the address is cocktailvirgin.blogspot.com. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, Did you read the, there's an, a whole little like informative thing about Calamity Jane? Oh, talk, yeah. Talking about her reputation, and so apparently people tried to slander her by saying that she was uh, no better than she should have been in parlance of the times. Well, she she often was considered a loose woman, even though she was very loose with liquor and um, maybe with some morals. I don't think there's a lot of evidence that she was I know, I think it's a lady all, of the evening. I think it's all slander. <laughs> slander and lies. I actually... <laughs> I actually, or if it is true, then good for her. <laughs> I accidentally kind of sidled up to and hung out at Calamity Jane's gravesite way closer than I should have when we visited Mount right. Moriah Cemetery in Deadwood, South Dakota. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> it is. Um, she's buried not too far from um, Wild Bill Hickok. And um, yeah, we went and we didn't take a tour or anything and we walked up and we kind of entered the graveyard, like her gravesite. It, there's a, a like a there's a fence around it. Um, we entered from the back and it because it was open. And I, there's pictures of me just like hanging out with Jane's tombstone. <laughs> and um, and then a, a a tour came by in the front of the like in the front of the tombstone and it was like we were part of a display and I was like oh we're not supposed to be in here <laughs> kind of ran they should away. have a sign or something they should they should also keep the gate locked um but I put a little stone on her grave and I have a lot of love for Calamity Jane but considering how um how audacious Georgie is um we thought that a Calamity Jane cocktail would be you know would would be fitting for uh, the book, um, for Georgie's both, story. And they were both sharpshooters, too. Yes, that was another that was another reason. But since you don't know who Georgie is yet, we will tell you. Here's a portion of the School Library Journal annotation that provides a bit of a synopsis um, for the book. 13-year-old Georgie Burkhart can shoot better than anyone in Placid, Wisconsin. She can handle accounts and serve customers in her family's general store. What she can't do is accept that the unrecognizable body wearing her older sister's blue-green gown is Agatha. Determined to discover what happened after Agatha abruptly left town with a group of pigeoners, Georgie sets out to follow her route. In return for the loan of a mule, she reluctantly allows Billy McCabe, one of Agatha's suitors, to accompany her. This journey includes a menacing cougar and ruthless counterfeiters. All right, so this book is set in 1871, Wisconsin, and this girl's name is Georgie. Um, she has a sister named Agatha who's older and sort of rebellious, um, and she loves her sister, but she doesn't understand her very much. But she thinks she does. But she thinks she does. But it's basically set 
just in a normal year, except it turns out that this is a year of the biggest passenger pigeon nesting season like ever in recorded history, um, which is, we'll talk about that more later, but it's so interesting. Um, but it's a story of uh, the family relationship and the fact that the sister at the beginning of the book has gone missing and is presumed dead. They, they bring back a body that's mangled to the point that they can't actually tell who it is, but it has the right color hair and the right dress, so they assume that it's her, but her sister doesn't accept it. No, Georgie is not buying it. Georgie goes off with Billy McCabe to prove that Agatha's still alive. She's going to find her and bring her home, find her and apologize to her first for some drama that she created between Agatha, Billy McCabe, and Agatha's intended, Mr. Olmstead, a... Um, a very well-off gentleman that lives in the town. Who's older and well-read. And mm-hmm. and, um, and and there's postulated that Agatha only kind of dates him or lets him court her because he's got a massive library, which I, I think totally is totally valid. <laughs> We're both like, yeah, sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I marry for a library. Yeah, it was rough times. I mean, you're dirty all the time. No one expects anything from you as a lady. I'd marry for a library, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So she takes off with her sister's childhood sweetheart and heads in the direction that everyone knew they were headed last. Which is Dog Hollow, Wisconsin. And all kinds of craziness ensues. And Agatha had ostensibly run off with pigeoners. During this season when the pigeons were all nesting. Were the pigeoners, like, were they were they hunting the pigeons? Were they, like... I, making stuff out of the pi- I, I that part I didn't quite I know get. that when they used the term pigeoners I was like hmm I, I can make some guesses about this but I'm not entirely sure honestly and because I'm a little drunk from this calamity Jane <laughs> it doesn't take much folks um I just kept picturing a wagon full of birds from Sesame Street <laughs> like because he's so into pigeons yeah. and that's my only frame of, ref- frame of reference for like oh Bernice pigeon pigeon enthusiasts <laughs> So just a bunch of Burt's and then Agatha's in the back of the wagon. I love it. I love it. She would probably not have come to a bad end in that case. She might have been strangled by like... Ernie. Ernie's not a murderer. He's got those crazy eyes. It's so interesting because it has all of these like disparate elements that I associate with other things. Like... It is a murder mystery, but it has a Wild West feel, even though it wasn't really the Wild West mm-hmm. at all. There's a <laughs> lot of nature things in it, which I really love. So we'll talk about our read-alikes later, but it reminded me of so many different things. They were sort of like puzzle pieces of all these other very successful books mm-hmm. and, and even TV shows and movies that put together make a totally different picture, but are it's such a good book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really liked it anyway. I really liked it too. I loved the tension. I thought the tension was really well paced out. And um, Georgie, she was a very convincing 13-year-old narrator. I liked that we don't usually see books from this perspective. We usually would read a book from the perspective of the older sister. You know, the rebellious character who's not satisfied with her lot in life and wants to run off and have adventures. Whereas Georgie is happy to be like a storekeeper. That's what she wants to be in life. She That's what her family does. She's totally happy to do it. She's good at it. She likes it. She has no understanding of why her sister would want to do anything else. And, she, and Georgie's rough and tumble, but she's not the adventuring kind, which I think is really interesting and something that I don't recall ever reading about or seeing before. 
No, no. I mean, I am more used to the books that are like um, in Stardust by Neil Gaiman. There's a line where the main character is talking about the fact that he's a shop boy. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, some people are born shop boys and some people are just a shop boy for a little while until they do what they're supposed to do. But Georgie's into it. Like, she just loves it. Her family does the thing that she loves and she's just going to stick with it. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting to make that person the main character in a book that's about such a wild adventure. Yeah, but she's still so audacious, which I love. And um, as she prepares for the journey, like... I love that she gets out her Prairie Traveler, a handbook for overland expeditions written by Randolph B. Marcy. Who has an excellent name. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, she just starts making a list of things she'll need for her journey. And I love that so much. I love how basic it is, too. She's like, horse. Yeah, (laughs) horse. How am I going to get a horse? Like, I just, I love that. And then, like, food. (laughs) It's not like this flights of fancy or whatever. She's like, well... I need a horse. I need some food. And then she ultimately, um, she sweet talks, or she thinks she sweet talks um, Agatha's old childhood sweetheart, Billy McCabe, into letting her rent a horse. But then he shows up the morning of, and it is really a mule who she calls long ears and who does not behave. Yeah. And Um, he insists on going with her. Yeah, Billy McCabe and his beautiful horse, Storm. Um, And... Here's where we get into some things that I have some questions about. Georgie seems to be very attracted to Billy, which is fine. She's 13. He's 18? I think 19. 19. There seems to be some attraction coming back. I know. It's weird, like, the things he assumes. Like, I know that they sort of grew up together, but he's still a lot bigger than she is and automatically assumes that they're going to, like, snuggle up together at night when they camp. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's, like, if you grow up, you're, like, brothers and sisters, kind of. I wouldn't snuggle up with my brother's friends. <laughs> and we're only two we're only two years apart. <laughs> but it was olden times, right? Like, I think that is worse <laughs> because people were more proper then. I don't know. Like, I just, it seemed weird to me because I almost thought that the revelation was not going to be that he actually did love Polly, which I thought they were going to get together in the end. Like, yeah, I thought he was going to be like, I'm going to wait for you. Yeah. And so, okay. So Billy is already engaged to someone else named Polly Barfod, which is such a bad, like, (laughs) it's a funny name, but I feel so bad for Polly. Well, and there's kind of a cheap shot about thick ankles with her too. Oh, there is? Yeah. When he, I remember that. When the first time that they mention her, they say that she had like blonde hair and braids around her head, but then like big thick ankles and Georgie's sitting there thinking about how tree trunks meet the ground. Oh yeah. I, I think I didn't, I was just so taken aback by the name because it's so horrible. <laughs> it's a terrible name. You're putting, you're putting, you know, barf in a last name and it's, it's very entertaining, but I just felt so bad for Polly. Like she's if she getting, were, she's getting the short end of the stick in a lot of ways. She is like, she's getting Agatha's leftovers. She gets abandoned for a 13 year old who wants to take her fiance on an adventure. Yeah. She probably will always wonder if Billy even ever really loved her because Agatha is described as such a dazzling figure. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so poor Polly. What did you think of Georgie and Agatha's mom? Okay. So I love most of the things about this book, but she is on my very short list of things that I don't like. Um, because she's so passive. There's not a lot about her. Yeah. 
Well, and like, okay, so Georgie goes off with an older boy, even if he's super well known to the family, to find out. Well, she's determined to prove that her sister is alive, but as far as her family is concerned, her sister has been murdered by these sketchy people that she went off with. So the mom is not aware of this plan. As it turns out, her grandfather is aware of the plan and sort of condoned it and sent her off with what he considered to be a chaperone. But the mom is at home thinking, oh, well, the second one ran off. And she does nothing. The mom does have the titular line. <laughs> I, I, well, you know what? If if both of your kids leave and your dad dies and then one of them comes back in time for the funeral, are you just going to be like, oh, good, one came home? Like, <laughs> That's not what my reaction would be. <laughs> it was her reaction. <laughs> I don't want to judge the fictional lady. Um, I yeah, do, a little I bit. <laughs> I Yeah, I don't know if that would have been my reaction, but I thought the mom could have had some more time, had some more development. Um, I know it ultimately wasn't her story. I mean, she marries Billy's dad, the sheriff, the the man who found ostensibly Agatha's body. Um, but there's not a lot of development other than, you know, kind of, she provides some exposition. She, she's just, you know, like if, if, if my daughter had been murdered, you Mm -hmm. know, which she thought had happened and then another one runs off, Mm -hmm. I would not just sit there. Yeah. Like that Mm -hmm. seemed unnecessary. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I can see Especially that. Especially if you're dating the sheriff. You're yeah. like, hey, sheriff boyfriend, maybe you go look for my daughter. I think an argument could be made that the grandpa dying when she was gone, like, the mom had her hands full. Yeah. But, I don't know, maybe it's just me because I have, like, anxiety. But I think if if that happened... I would be more worried instead of less because that would be two of the three main people in my life who were then dead. Mm-hmm. And the third one had run off. I would kind of... Not a lot more you can do besides mm-hmm. go to a funeral for the ones that are already gone, but the one that had run off, you could do something about. And so I would probably be more determined. Well, didn't she... Did she send Mr. Olmstead? Oh, that's a good question. I think he just showed up on his own. Hmm. Like he heard what was going on and then showed up. Yeah. Which in my mind would make him an even better suitor for Agatha because he had some sense. (laughs) You know, he's like older, he's refined, he has good books. And then like he hears about this stupid plan and is like, yeah, no, I'm going to go get her. He really saves them. I mean, he really, really saves them, particularly Billy. Mm -hmm. But I loved some of the trouble that Georgie got into. Yes. The shooting scene made me so happy. <laughs> the shooting scene was so funny, and I actually looked up what hoyden means. Um, so, you know, of course, when she ends up shooting the guys and they can't really see her until she's, like, wounded and she shows her face, mm-hmm. and the guys start screaming that she's a Hoyden demon. <laughs> um, so hoyden means a saucy or boisterous woman or girl. Which is funny because... She doesn't seem like that in the beginning at all. But so she's ridden off and she's chosen to wear these like split pants for riding, which was already a little bit scandalous. But then she takes off the pants to use them for cover so she can shoot counterfeiters. I loved that so much. I just love that by the end she's like, I'm a thumb shooter. Yeah. Because <laughs> she shoots this guy's thumb off. 
I loved that so much, and I loved that the drawing of her in the newspaper was like... <laughs> She's like, I didn't look like that. <laughs> but it's like her face is half sheared off. <laughs> and and I just love that it was a drawing of it. Like, someone had to imagine what she actually looked like, and then drew, like, this horrible wound. <laughs> well, and I love that, like, the whole reason, like, her face is all mangled up because she is clumsy and fell on some rocks. Mm-hmm. But then she's with Billy this whole time, who's apparently considered very charming and considers himself very charming. But it's sort of a comeuppance for him that everybody that they run into everywhere assumes that he beats her. Yeah. And that they're also like together together because they're like, shame on you. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was interesting. One thing that I really noticed is the... I feel like in 1871 in Wisconsin, there would have been some American Indian representation. That's true. And there was like none. Mm -mm. And there were no, I don't think there were any people of color. I thought that was really interesting and maybe not realistic. It's hard to tell. Yeah. Especially since like, I think that there was a lot going on then. Mm -hmm. So with like, there were fires at the end of the summer and like the huge pigeon nesting thing. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if the normal population of any town would all have been there at that time. That's true. But it's hard to tell. Yeah. I can definitely see the feminist content. um, Even though some of it might be kind of just because of when it's set and just because of the characters kind of proto feminism. Mm -hmm. Um, So like wearing a split skirt, that was a huge deal and but it was a very much you know so she could move properly and she could actually go on her journey and that's that's totally feminist well and it's so. nice that like she's such a like a conforming person but she's still making practical choices based on what's going to work for what she's trying to do mm-hmm. it's not like oh well there you know i can't do this because of this she's like no i'm going to ride a horse i'm going to wear this mm-hmm. which is yeah. nice because she's yeah. not even the rebellious one in the story yeah um but I did like to see sort of like her evolution. And I thought that, so she's got this rifle that is a single shot rifle that she's very proud of. And her family thinks that's a great gun. And she is an expert sharpshooter with it. And to me, that seemed very representative of how she was at the beginning of the book. Like she's set in, in this one way of doing things. And that's what her family likes. And that's what she's good at. And she is great with it. She loves that gun. She loves how she is. Um, and she's a little bit condescending about these like multi-shot guns, the repeater rifles. Um, but by the end of the book, she has tried it and been like, yeah, I can see how this would work. Like, it just seems like they're using the gun as, as an, as a metaphor for what she is doing in her life. And it's a weird metaphor to me because I'm not a gun person. And especially because she ultimately decides that killing isn't something that she's interested in anymore. But just in terms of being representative of her being open-minded and changing, I liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and then a, a book set back in 1871, a gun was a tool. Right. It, you know, it was a necessary tool. It was for a necessary life. tool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was for survival in a lot of cases, um, for food and various things, um, to scare off predators. Protection. Yeah. Um, so looking at it from that scope of, it was a tool and she evolved with her usage of that tool. I can definitely get on board. I'm Mm -hmm. not a gun person either. Um, but, um, I want to get back to the pigeons. 
which are so interesting. Like this phenomenon has always been interesting to me. I don't. Th- I didn't know anything about it until I read this. Okay, so passenger pigeons are so so interesting. They were like way more prolific than buffalo in North America. There were like millions of them. There's these stories about how they blotted out the sun. It was like a swarm of locusts almost. Like, and you see that in the book. And Agatha actually like takes an umbrella and goes into a swarm of pigeons and then like dances around. Yeah. Which is a really cool image. But so these pigeons would flock and migrate and do this thing that they do in the book that's described so well. And it's just overwhelming and it's bizarre because it's millions and millions and millions and millions of these birds, which are not like the pigeons that we have now. They're a lot bigger. They're almost, it sounds to me like they're almost like pheasants. Oh, wow. I haven't actually looked at pictures of them, but they talk about them being like a foot and a half long and beautiful. But they were hunted literally to extinction. And it's, it's yet another metaphor because you've got this thing that just seems pervasive, like a way, a complete like way of life and a way of being that you think could never change. Like it's so overwhelming that you think it could never change, but then it does. What? Okay. So they were hunted into extinction. Were they hunted for sport or did they, were they actually used for something? They were used for lots of things. Um, like pigeon meat. Yeah. So the people ate them. I mean, we would never eat a pigeon now, or I guess some people would, but um, they're kind of gross. No offense to pigeon eaters. That's true. Had we wanted to make an authentic <laughs> recipe for this book rather than a cocktail, we could have gone with the pigeon pie that they described, but that is not... Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. We Mm-mm. couldn't even we couldn't even bring ourselves to <laughs> finagle bear meat for Sign of the Beaver, so pigeons were right out. <laughs> I still don't even feel like that's a thing that you can actually buy. I know <laughs> you can, particularly online, but there's something so weird about the idea of eating bear meat, but that I mean that just has to do with where I grew up and what I grew up eating. Yeah, well, I mean, I've certainly which never... is the American South <laughs> East. So. I've, cer- I've certainly never had bear, but like I've eaten alligator and all kinds mm. of other weird seafood, and I'm, I'm sure that we could have gotten some bear, but I just didn't really want to. Mm-hmm. Also, like before, like people shot bears because they needed enough meat to get a whole family through a winter, or they needed to protect yeah. themselves, and the bear was going to eat their cow. Or I didn't feel right about his buying it just for a stunt kind yeah, of thing. No, I don't I don't really want to eat a bear. No. It's the same way I won't eat a rabbit. I don't think I've ever had rabbit. I kind of have the policy that like if I'm willing to eat meat, I should be willing to to participate in butchering it if necessary. So like we had backyard chickens for a while. Mm-hmm. Um for a long time actually. And at one point <clears throat> at one point one of the flocks started cannibalizing their eggs. And it's one of those things that if it gets to be enough of a habit, like there is no way to break it. We tried everything. So we had to put the flock down. Did you have to wring their necks? So you can have it professionally done. But but yeah, we did it. Because I felt like if we were going to do that, I needed to be able to help be a part of it. Because otherwise it wasn't being responsible. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of people who keep chickens for pets. And like in another situation where we moved and I needed to get rid of chickens, like I gave them to somebody who gave them an excellent home where they were spoiled rotten. But a lot of people just drop them off at like the humane society as if it were a cat or a dog and somebody's going to adopt a chicken. Are they set up for They're, chickens? They are really the not. <laughs> They're really not like animal shelters are not set up for things like poultry, but people still just, just drop them. Oh God. Yeah. So, but it had to be done because like, then if we pass those chickens on to somebody else, they would continue to do that elsewhere and maybe kind of get the other flocks to do it. Mm -hmm. So there's really not a lot of coming back from that. 
Is there a thing? Um, I read Alice Walker's book about keeping chickens. Have you read this? Mm-mm. So she um, writes about how her rooster died. And one of the chickens started to morph kind of physically into a rooster. Yeah, that happened with us. Really? Yeah, so we never had a rooster. We only had hens. But they go through kind of like chicken menopause. Mm -hmm. And if they're an older chicken and they're kind of the dominant chicken in a flock, that can absolutely happen. So we had this uh, chicken um, and she had gone through all the normal egg laying stuff. And then um, over time after she stopped laying eggs... um, she grew spurs that were like three inches long. Are you serious? Yeah, like grew big chicken spurs on her legs. Oh my God. And started acting very aggressive and territorial. That's awesome. Which was kind of awesome. Wow, that's so interesting. Because I, I thought it was just kind of like they started to kind of posture oh, no. or like, no, you she know, started to crow. attitude, but like growing spurs. Yeah, physically that's growing amazing. spurs. It wasn't that's just amazing. behavioral. Like yeah. she did crow, but like. We were like, what's that on her legs? Oh, wow. That's really cool. Um, so the pigeons, <laughs> so the what pigeons. else would be, I mean, other than eating them would, I mean, would they use the bones for something? Well, definitely the feathers. Definitely the feathers. But I think that like a pigeon is a lightweight enough bird that once the meat and the feathers are gone, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that there are other purposes for like weird body parts, but probably that's it. Yeah. Hmm. But, and then they were just totally gone. Wow. That's sad. Yeah. But it is interesting. And the, the, one of the things that we're always talking about is how we would prefer that there were more notes in the backs of these books. And this oh, has this fantastic was great. notes. This was absolutely wonderful. Like she talks about what she was inspired by. She's got more resources. There's mm-hmm. like links and books and notes about of, other historical events that happened that year. Yeah. It's fantastic. And so that, um, provides sort of a gateway to learning more about the whole passenger pigeon phenomenon. I did like how descriptive she was everywhere. Like yeah. describing the aftermath of the pigeons going through with like pigeon poop everywhere and like feathers yeah. floating in the air and like the only thing I really didn't buy is that Agatha wasn't covered in pigeon poop after her stunt with the umbrella. Yeah. The umbrella would have been. Yeah. But I really feel like Agatha would have been too. The way um, the way it was described, like they were all around her. Yeah, they she weren't was just. Yeah, they weren't just above her. Like she was inside a cloud of them, and I feel like there would have been some pigeon poo that kind of flung sideways somewhere. Well, maybe there was, and they just didn't describe it. Maybe. Hmm. This book reminded me of so many different things, but it was weird how much it reminded me of um, this TV show that my daughter watches. So Lily is three, and she likes cartoons, and I was so happy when she liked the show because it's actually really well done, but DreamWorks has done this animated series called Spirit that's a Netflix original. So it's crazy because it started out as a Disney movie, so there's like a regular Disney animated movie about a horse named Spirit. The movie's okay, but this series is supposed to be about like uh, a horse that's like an offspring of the original horse. Um, spirit too. Spirit too. Son of spirit. <laughs> Spiriter. So, you know, it's basically uh, the same time period, but in, I think, Texas, but out where they're, they're building the railroads for the first time. And this girl goes because her dad works for the railroad. And it has this just like 
Wild West, but not Wild West feeling. And it just has the same tone. And it's so interesting because I just get the same vibe from both of those things. And I want to read, they, they have actually now made a series of books for younger readers based on the TV show, based on the movie. Oh, wow. But if it's as well done as the TV show, it's probably really good. Cool. Yeah. But like if that met Evolution of Calpurnia Tate by Jacqueline Kelly oh. and those two things had a baby, I feel like put that together with a murder mystery and you have this book. So one one caveat I would have for recommending this book for people, I mean, I would recommend it wholeheartedly because it was really entertaining and as a historical fiction murder mystery. Like, and we have not given away the solution the of the mystery, yeah. which so, I feel like is an okay thing not for us not to give away. Yeah, I would I would hate to that. I mean, there are spoilers and then there are spoilers. Yeah, so. but um, I would say that this book I would recommend it completely. Except if your kids are sensitive or too young, because I mean, if they're readers of like the graveyard book or doll bones and they're fine with that, then they would be totally fine with this. But in this book, um, there is a dead body. It was found in pieces. It's described as being like too mangled to tell if it was her sister or not. Um, and there are some scary parts where there's counterfeiters and shooting and it's pretty clear that they would murder her if they could. So it's a great book, but if you've got kids that are easily scared or put off or are going to be troubled by the description of, of mm -hmm. a dead body, it's not it's not graphic or anything. Well, I, I think it's, it's not gross. No, I think it's I think it's an appropriate amount of description. Yeah, it's a matter of fact description of a mangled body. Mm -hmm. It's not gross. It's not gratuitous. It's not gory. It just mm -hmm. explains that there's not really enough of her face to identify her properly mm -hmm. and that her body was not found intact because it was left where wild animals could get to it. And she didn't have her throat slit or anything. She was shot, but still. And I, I would wholeheartedly recommend this, um, depending on what you know, what you like to read. This would definitely skew towards the older end of the, of the spectrum of ages that the Newberry serves, I think. For Newberry, yes. Yeah. Yes. Because it, it caps out at 14. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would put this over at least... I would say 11 or 12. 11 or 12, yeah. Um, um, so let's do our read-alikes. I think we have just read-alikes. Yeah. We both liked this book. <laughs> we did. It would be hard to do a read better than in the same vein. Okay, so um, I talked about... Um, the Disney movie that inspired a Netflix... DreamWorks show which has inspired a book series so I would say in the same tone um, that would work if you like this book um, also The Evolution of Calpurnia Tate by Jacqueline Kelly which was a 2010 honor book that one is set in 1899 in Texas but has the same um, preoccupation with uh, naturalists and, and a very strong main female character I thought Agatha's uh, love of the library that the older suitor had and pr particularly the Audubon book um, was super uh, evocative of Okay For Now by Gary Schmidt which has a main character who is obsessed by the end with this Audubon book um, but it's so so well written it's my one book of all other books that I cannot believe it didn't get a Newbery um, but it was a sequel to a Newbery book or at least a companion to a Newbery book 
the Wednesday Wars, which got an honor in 2010. Um, and then ironically, um, it reminded me a little bit of Dollbones, which is by Holly Black, um, and an honor in the same year as this book. So an honor in 2014, which we're going to talk about later this season. Um, but it has the same like sense of going off to solve what may or may not be a murder mystery um, without parental sanction. <laughs> um, and it's just good. It's just well-read, and it has a little bit of a macabre tone, but not too much. And it's interesting and adventurous. So I think all of those would be really good uh, books to read if you liked this book. Um, so I have two read-alikes, and they're both nonfiction books. One is Sue Macy's photobiography of Annie Oakley. It's called Bullseye. And it's an amazing, amazing photobiography of... Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, Sorry, she's flipping through it so, right now. I've never seen this book before, but it looks... Are those engravings? Yeah, there's engravings of Annie Oakley. There are pictures of Annie Oakley. There's, um, in particular, ones <laughs> wow, from her, <laughs> from her, some of her stage shows. There's playbills. Um, there are some, um, I guess, negatives. So you can see... Well, there's there's still frames. Um, there are continuous still no sequential. Yes, there's <laughs> sequential still frames from a film of her, um, and it's got her in in different costumes. It's got it's just kind of an amazing it's like book. Posters and maps and yeah, um, and some pictures of of just some of her contemporary surroundings. It's I'm a big fan of this book. It does a good job of bringing her into context and also of giving her kind of a like of giving modern children a way into reading about her. Um it's not it's very factual. Of course it's got a lot of historical notes in the back. Um but it also is just really Cool. Um, it's just really cool and captivating <laughs> and very complete. And I feel like it, it gives a really full picture of her um, and, and what in the things that she dealt with um, during the time she lived. And the other one is another Amelia Bloomer book. It's called Rebel in a Dress, Cowgirls, and it's by Sylvia Branzi and illustrated by Melissa Sweet. And each chapter is about an actual cowgirl who... Um, may have lived an old, a long time ago, um, may currently be living. And you have people like Mary Fields and Tad Lucas and Sally Skull, as well as Calamity Jane and Annie Oakley and um, contemporary cowgirl Charmaine James. Um, so these are little profiles, um, some with some actual pictures of the cowgirls, depending on if photographs were available. Um, oh, look, there's a picture of Calamity Jane standing not too far from where I was standing. Oh, goodness. Um, she's standing near Bill, Wild Bill Hickok's grave. Um, and I wasn't too far from her where she was standing, um, where her grave ultimately was. Wow. So I'll see if I can dig up one of those pictures I for the to see it. podcast page. Um, so there's it, this filled with facts, but it's also very conversational. And it talks about some of the struggles that they, um, that they dealt have dealt with or have dealt with being in, um, in some cases that profession, in some cases 
just being alive during that time and being um, interested in being on the frontier. So um, I really recommend both of these books wholeheartedly. They're just, they're super, super interesting. If nothing else, um, the pictures alone are I love it Amazing. that you, if you put it together, like our reader likes, put like make a really good complete picture of like fiction and nonfiction and mm -hmm. narrative and documentation and mm -hmm. yeah, I um yeah I couldn't stop thinking about these books when I was reading uh, when I came home, just because Georgie, I mean she's she's a practiced marksman or markswoman, but how she comes into her own in that regard. I just kept thinking about these two books. So I know it is kind of amazing that like all of these outrageous things happen. Like she's stalked by a cougar. She's off on an adventure with this older guy who she sort of develops a crush on and then becomes disillusioned with, you know, she's got all these family dramas. Her sister may or may not have been murdered. Her grandfather's dying. There's another family that comes into question with, a daughter who also may or may not have been murdered. But all of that sort of fades into the background because you're so interested in Georgie. Mm -hmm. Like she's yeah. such a personality mm -hmm. and she's so matter of fact about everything that she wants to do and she's yeah. going to do it. Yeah. You know, and she's got this skill that she's practiced and people are talking about her at the end of the book in, in newspapers and there's reporters and everything. And she's just like, well, if you practice something, you're going to get good at it. Like she's, she's not just like, oh, I'm the best in the world. I can do anything. She's just like, I don't know. I, I practice the thing. Yeah, she continues <laughs> to have this very level head, and I think, that's, I think that's great. She just wants to go back and work on her store. Yeah. She says she's good at math, and that's what she wants to do. Keep the books. <laughs> she's great. <laughs> and I'm not surprised either, because even like the background character of Agatha, is she's the more obvious feminist in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, because she, her, her goals in life, like she wants to go to the university, you know, she wants to run off and do her own thing. She wants to not marry her sweetheart and maybe not marry this older dude because he doesn't trust her completely. Like she totally knows her own mind and she has things that happen to her, but she just does it anyway. I don't know yeah. if it's just an awesome family or what. <laughs> Okay, so our drink for this was the Calamity Jane, a tribute drink to Martha Canary. So we drank a Calamity Jane. What did you think? I think it's delicious. Um, it's kind of like an old-fashioned, um, except the base alcohol is gin, and it is delicious. It tastes like very strong kind of bitter orange juice to me. I think it's actually very well suited to the tone of the book. Mm. it's got like I could imagine this being in like a saloon yeah you know not that they would necessarily have had whatever that, that Amaro fancy Italian liqueur ginger syrup but they would well maybe they would have ginger yeah because they they would boil up some syrups but um yeah no the orange in it is really good and it's really delicious it's not too sweet I can picture having like an animal skin filled with this and just kind of sipping it as I, <laughs> as I go along the trail to Dog Hollow. Like it, it feels like it's hydrating you, but it also is very alcoholic um, mm -hmm. to me. <laughs> <laughs> and it smells really nice. Like it smells like a sunny day. 
Um, but it, it's, it's hit me pretty hard listeners. (laughs) (laughs) I'll definitely make this again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Newberry Tart Podcast. Next up is The Year of Billy Miller by Kevin Hankus. Join us next time. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N E W B E R Y T A R T dot com.